Welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and we are uh, here. It is season four. This is the uh, the season premiere, and uh, for that occasion, uh, I have a very, very special guest. Um, I met Meredith Broussard many years ago when I first moved to Philadelphia, and we have sort of uh, been chatting and been friends ever since. Uh, and since then, she has gone on to create a wonderful book called Artificial Unintelligence. And Meredith, I'll let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about a little bit about what that that book is. Dave, thanks for having me. It's so great to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Oh, thank you. So my book, Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World, is a book about the inner workings and outer limits of technology. So I'm a data journalism professor at NYU. Data journalism, of course, is the practice of finding stories in numbers and using numbers to tell stories. And what I do in the book is I explain how computers work, what computers don't do, and I tell some stories from my own investigative reporting in areas like public education or campaign finance. Uh, and then I also tell some other wacky stories about like the time that I went on a cross-country bus trip to compete in a hackathon and made a, an app that calculates how much pizza you need for a pizza party. Yeah, that's a crazy story. Tell me about that. Like, how did you even end up on that bus? Like, was it for the book or does it just sort of something that happened and you're like, okay, this needs to be in the book? I wanted to write about hackathons mm -hmm. because hackathons are this, this fascinating cultural phenomenon where people come together and work really hard to make something amazing in a very short period of time. And then nobody does anything with the software that they've made. <laughs> Uh, which just it just blows my mind. All of this effort and all of this pizza and all of this Red Bull for like nothing. Yeah. So it turns out that what hackathons are good for is they're good for recruiting. Mm. So recruiters like to go to hackathons to uh, find people to work at tech companies. Uh, lots of people make friends at hackathons and they use them the hackathon for networking and they. Uh, find people who maybe they'll work together on a future project. Um, but my my pizza calculating app, it was a lot of fun to build. Uh, it it solved a uh, a particular pain point that I had in my own life because I uh, I used to throw a lot of pizza parties for my kid and his friends and their parents. And uh, the pizza math that we would have to do at yeah. every party was very, very complicated because, you know, people are vegans and the little kids, they only eat half a slice. So how many pies are you going to get double sliced and what kinds of toppings do people have? And it's it's very, very complicated. So uh, it was great to have an app that did that. But I. Uh, we never did anything with the app after the hackathon, but we did win the hackathon, so that was something. Well, that's good, and I and I can relate. I used to run meetups, and the pizza problem is persistent. Like you always end up getting more pizza than you need, and yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, yep. There is uh, there's a concept that you kind of build the book around called techno chauvinism. Um, tell me a little bit uh, about what that means and how it kind of ties into your book. Techno-chauvinism is the idea that technology is superior, that technical solutions are superior to human solutions. And what I would argue is that 
it's not a competition, that we need more <laughs> nuance, that sometimes the right tool for the task is a computer, and then other times the right tool for the task is something simple like a book in the hands of a child on its parent's lap. And so instead of thinking, oh, we need to use the computer for everything, let's think about what is the right tool for the task. What are we trying to accomplish? What is our budget? What is our maintenance threshold? Who are the people who are going to be affected by this system? And what's really the best design for this system? Yeah, and I feel like we're, we're biased towards tools in general, because I find myself as a consultant having that conversation with a client all the time of, you know, they may have already locked in on, oh, we need a Twitter account, or oh, we need uh, to make a video, or whatever the solution they've already kind of latched onto, without thinking about, well, what is the problem you're trying to solve, and then think about what tool to use. And, and think about with computers, we sort of always assume, oh, whatever the problem is, oh, of course a computer can handle that. Yeah, and that's a particular kind of bias. And it's it has become particularly acute over the past two decades. And as I was writing the book, I, I realized that we had been gripped with this kind of bias. And I wondered, where did this come from? Mm. So I went back into the history of the development of the computer and looked at who who exactly gave us this idea that a computer is superior to a human. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the majority of our ideas about the future of technology and society actually come from a very small and homogeneous group of people, most of whom trained as mathematicians. Hmm. And so there are a couple of structural biases at work inside the world of elite mathematics that tech has inherited. Right. So mathematicians have uh, have this idea that the math that they're working on is so important that they don't need to be bothered with pesky social considerations, mm -hmm. which on the one hand, like makes this this wonderful world where people can be deeply idiosyncratic and still be welcomed. But on the other hand, ignoring Social considerations does not make for a welcoming environment. So there's this idea that, oh, well, you can be an elite mathematician if you can do the math. Well, you know, it's strange. Like women and people of color have never been considered able to do the math. Yeah. For centuries. Yeah. And you know what? That's I. I, I barely even know where to start. With, <laughs> well, well like, how wrong that is. Well, yeah. Well, let me let me let me help you that. So the, the the that was actually one of my favorite things about the book is that you do kind of trace back this libertarian streak in modern tech, which for me, I kind of bought into the myth of you know the new breed of tech startups that were all you know, uh, move fast and break things, and hey, we're going to disrupt, right? We're going to disrupt mm -hmm. the old elite you know, white guys with money, corporations, way of doing things, and we have this new, fresh thing. And I assumed, right, there's a sort of an attribution error. I assumed that, oh, well, if they're more liberal around things like, you know, oh, failure is good, learning is good, well, then they must be liberal around all these other things. And it turns out yeah. not so much. Like, this is why Gamergate caught me, caught me off guard. I'm like, oh, wait, you're saying they're chauvinists and they're into open source? How can that be, you know? <laughs> 
Right, right. Yeah, we really, many of us thought that uh, that technology, that using technology was inherently liberating, mm -hmm. right? Like we thought that, oh, if we're having uh, having conversations online, then these conversations must themselves be liberatory. Mm. But it turns out that all we've done is replicate every single social problem. Yeah in the online world and we don't have any social structures to deal with it yeah. so it's kind of a big mess yeah and it kind of reminds me of you know the myth of the old west right the idea that oh if you don't like where you are just go further out west we'll start over right and it'll be better but the thing people forgot is they brought themselves with them <laughs> when they went out west, exactly. right? So whatever chauvinism they had, whatever insecurities they had, whatever sort of myths they had about their own superiority just kept going. And I feel like the web is kind of like that, too. There's this great moment where you sort of talk about some of the early pioneers of the web and how they were kind of grown out of this hippie culture where they kind of attempted to create the perfect commune in real life. And when that didn't work out, they kind of moved to the web and thought they could do it there. Can you tell, tell me a little more about that? Because that, that was fascinating to me. That was actually, for me, one of the most exciting discoveries as I researched the book. So it turns out that the people who invented cyberspace mm -hmm were the same people who had dropped out and gone to live on communes in the 1960s. And the communes failed uh, for a number of, uh, of very predictable and kind of obvious reasons. And the, the folks came back to the real world and they said, well, you know, the communes failed, but there's this whole uncharted territory of cyberspace. And so we're going to take our new communalist ideals and now we're going to have cyberspace and we're going to we're going to make it work here mm -hmm. because even though it didn't work on the real world, it's definitely work on cyberspace because, look, this is new and it's using technology. And so you have something like the Whole Earth Catalog, which was started by a guy named Stuart Brand. And the Whole Earth Catalog was basically the Bible of the communes in the 1960s. And it had all kinds of uh, tips on, you know, making your own LSD and building a geodesic dome and, you know, composting your own feces, like all this, uh, all this hippie stuff that was super interesting. And in the back, there was a section where people could write in and communicate with each other. And so this section in the back of the whole Earth catalog fascinatingly, is what people were trying to recreate by creating comment sections and bulletin boards on the web. Hmm. Because they missed that particular community. And of course, the Whole Earth Catalog failed as a, as a magazine. Um, but Stuart Brand uh, was the creator of the very first web community, The Well. Huh. Wow. Yeah, so it was amazing to me that uh, it's exactly the same people who come up over and over. So one of the chapters in the book is about Marvin Minsky, who is widely considered the father of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that every single milestone of artificial intelligence from 1956 onward has Marvin Minsky behind it. Wow. 
And so Minsky was there uh, in 1956 at the founding meeting at the Dartmouth Math Department where they convened and basically invented the field of artificial intelligence. Minsky started the MIT Media Lab, uh, MIT, of course, being a... Uh, an incredible a superpower in artificial intelligence research. Minsky was even behind 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wow. <laughs> so remember in 2001 how there's that uh, that computer, HAL 5000, mm-hmm. who goes crazy and takes over the world? So Minsky was very good friends with Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the book and the movie. Right. And so when Arthur C. Clarke needed to design an incredibly scary, sentient computer, he turned to his friend Minsky to consult. So so what was the idea back then? Because we have sort of our own sort of, you know, prejudice or biases around like what we think of artificial intelligence today. And you sort of do a good job of delineating like the myth from the reality. Um, so tell me a little about the difference between like general AI and narrow AI. And then kind of tell me like, well, what was the idea at the start? Did they really think they were going to make this big, you know, sentient thing, or were they really just trying to, you know, get better at predicting stuff? No, they definitely thought they were making a sentient mm. thing. Like, the the dream was artificial general intelligence. The dream was to make uh, something, make the machine come alive, mm. like a Pygmalion kind of thing. Uh, so that is truly... A fantasy. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the important distinctions to make is, as you said, between general and narrow AI. So general AI is all of the Hollywood stuff. That is the Terminator. It's Commander Data. Mm -hmm. It is, uh, you know, machines that are going to become sentient and take over the world. And it's all totally imaginary. It's not true. Narrow AI is what we have. And narrow AI is just math. Now, machine learning, which is also real, sounds like there's maybe a little brain inside the computer. Yeah. So subconsciously, it's a little misleading. Like even as much as as much as I've learned about artificial intelligence, as much as I know about AI, I still hear the term machine learning. And I think like, oh, it sounds like there's a little brain inside yeah. the computer. But it's not like a better way of describing machine learning is that it's computational statistics on steroids. So when we predict things using machine learning, it's not that the computer is actually learning or thinking. It's just really, really amazingly sophisticated math. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, one of the things I love about your book is that you really break it down. And this is something I actually didn't know about you until I read the book is that you literally taught people how to build computers and built computers. Um, yeah. But you you take it like right from, you know, uh, Jump Street, it's, hey, this is what a computer is, like when you just break it down. And you just build from there to, and this is what AI is in a very linear way where you can sort of get. And it helps, it helped me anyway, understand, okay, this is what I could reasonably expect a computer to do versus something like data or HAL or one of these like Terminator situations where it's like, well, no, why, how would you get from here to there? That was, that, that made it a little really clear for me. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Thank (laughs) you. I mean, it's very much how I learned to think about computers myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I 
I wrote my first computer program when I was 11. And I built my first computer when I was about 15 or 16. So I've always been very aware of the material reality of a computer. And the first computer I built was through one of these like engineering uh, programs for kids where they just had a bunch of spare parts lying around uh, an engineering company and they gave us a pile of spare parts and said, hey, build your own computer out of this. And then if you build it, you can take it home and play games on it. And I was like, yes, sold. <laughs> so I built the thing and I played my games on it and it was really great. But I was always very acutely aware that this was a constructed thing that I had the power to make it or break it. Mm-hmm. And that it could not really measure up to my imagination. Yeah. So, so I could I could dream of things that a computer could do. And, you know, I read just as much science fiction as anybody else. Like, I, you know, I'm totally happy to talk about the fantastical science fiction stuff. But when it really comes right down to it, like, no, you can't build that. It just won't work. Yeah. And it, and it feel like it makes us you know, susceptible to, you know, going back to the fact that it really is just sort of high-level statistics. I've, you know, read about how it's to the point where a computer can't even necessarily tell you how it arrived at a certain choice because the, t- the statistical, you know, voodoo gets so deep. It's just making associations, and it's doing it at this mm-hmm. rate and scale. And so one of the scary outcomes of that, have you heard of um, single-pixel attacks? No, what's okay, that? so this is a fun thing I learned about since I read the book, but it sort of like you know matches kind of what you're talking about. So basically, and you have a great chapter in your book about sort of the myth of self-driving cars. Um, <laughs> so this is particularly relevant for that. But the idea is that you know if a computer is deciding if it's looking at a patch of grass or asphalt, that decision could come down to something as simple as a pixel that it has statistically correlated for reasons it can't open up a log and show you why it made that decision. It just makes it. Um, and apparently, if you have another AI, that AI can potentially figure out which pixel to switch to make the mm-hmm. car think, oh, this is gravel when it's actually grass. And it's called a single pixel attack because all you have to do is just manipulate one pixel to completely change the decision the computer has made. So it's like levels of complexities like that where I'm like, wow, we're getting to the point now where we've built this thing that's making decisions that we can't track, but we have like ultimate faith in i think in part because we can't track it yeah that's fascinating um one of the things that that horrified me most about self-driving cars is how how badly they work Hmm. and yet how certain people are that this technology is coming soon like it does not sound like a good idea to me to put a two-ton killing machine on the road if it can be disrupted by a single pixel. Yeah. And I mean, that just, that sounds like crazy town. Yeah. And I, I, I like where you get to um, in the book around, like you said, it's not a competition. Like the solutions around things like self-driving cars or really any of these, like, you know, AI assisted technologies is the assist part that a combination of human and AI can actually do a lot of good. It's just throwing everything over to the AI is sort of misplaced faith. Right, right. Um, I think the uh, something I've been thinking about lately also is the problem of maintenance mm. 
and Lee Vinsel at uh, at uh, Virginia Tech is doing a lot of interesting work around this. So we think a lot in innovation culture about making the new thing, and then we don't think very much about maintaining yeah. the new thing. And the maintenance is often extremely onerous and expensive. Mm-hmm. So the technical debt that you accumulate when you've been using a particular software system for years is extraordinary. Yeah. And the costs of of training people in the system and then realizing that they don't know what to do when the system goes down like is is highly problematic. Um so I read recently that the uh the navy is going back to uh, teaching celestial navigation to recruits because for a long time they thought, oh, well, we don't have to teach uh, map-based or celestial navigation anymore because we have GPS now Mm -hmm. and the GPS is just going to do all the thinking for us. But it turns out that GPS doesn't work all the time. And so if you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean – like and the GPS is not working or it gets wet or something, you still actually need to know how to navigate in the old-fashioned kind of way. Yeah, I've, and I feel like even in the early days of um, basically putting a computer chip in everything, there was this sort of movement towards saying that's great, but the default has to always be analog. Like I think one of the, the, the great examples of that is um, there's a documentary about uh, digital video versus film. And sort of the benefits mm-hmm. of the detriments. And one of the things uh, someone pointed out was, you know, there have been, I think it was like 70 different codecs for how to code film or how to code video on a computer since the mm-hmm. you st- they started doing it only 20, 30 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. So God help you. Like, even if you do have a perfectly working hard drive, God help you if you have to actually find the right way to read it. Whereas if I have a piece of film and a lighter... I can look at it through the light. That's all I need is a light source, yeah. right? And it is perfectly fine. So there's a resiliency, I think. And again, it's this sort of flipped myth. There's the res- there's a resiliency to analog that we kind of project onto AI. We were just talking about this before we recorded, right? We we just assume it's on the web, it's forever. We just assume that if it's AI, it's smarter. But these things are way more fragile and way more temporary than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the idea that we could switch everything over to digital and it would just be better is an idea that like, I definitely bought into in the beginning of the digital revolution, but it turns out that everything I wrote for the web in the 90s is gone. Yeah, it's crazy, but right? It's totally crazy, and the only place that it lives on is in printouts mm. in archival sleeves in my office. Yep. So I think about the system that produces journalism, right? And so you can read everything written in the Boston Globe on a given day in 1899, Mm. but you can't read everything written in the Boston Globe on a given day in 2006. Okay, that's just crazy. Right? (laughs) It's really crazy. And... And it actually takes more work, not less, Uh to uh, maintain these digital systems. So I think we just need to start having more conversations about what are we actually doing when we transition to digital Mm -hmm. and are we prepared 
to do the additional work required because we're just we're well past the point where computers make everything better, faster, and cheaper. Yeah, and you um, you bring up uh, you bring up a good point about that. Um, this one of the quotes I really loved was: "If you expect the computer to do magical things, you'll be disappointed. If you expect it to speed things up, you'll be fine." Right? That's what computers do. They take calculations that would take a human an obnoxiously long amount of time and do them in a millisecond. Mm-hmm. And whatever you can leverage that for, great. But anything else, no, it's not going to, you know, cure cancer for you. Yeah. And it's really amazing, like, the ways that we can use computers. Like, computer vision, for example, just really takes my breath away mm. when I think about it. Like, the fact that we can... Uh, turn an image into pixels and we can do mathematical analysis of that pixel grid is is a really marvelous achievement. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible. Uh, on the other hand, you're right, it's not curing cancer. Like it's just it's just a pixel grid. Yeah, and it's so we shouldn't get carried away with imagining that it can do more than it actually can. Yeah, and it's funny, too. Even as I said that, I'm like, well, it can't cure cancer, but if you put humans with computers, you can cure it way faster, right? There's, like, games like yeah. Folded, where they had computers trying to, you know, very quick story, but they had a, um, a computer trying to basically fold proteins in a way that would help them understand how to cure cancer. Um, and the computers were doing okay, but as soon as they turned it into a game and had humans working with computers to do it, it they got there much, much faster. So there really is something to be said mm-hmm. for thinking of it as a tool, not as a sentient like savior um yeah yeah and generally humans plus computers will outperform just humans alone or just computers yeah alone i yeah so i like thinking about uh thinking about it as a partnership Mm. versus a replacement yeah because another way to think about it is like what are we doing if we're creating a world that is very very convenient for machines i if you don't have human contact in a given day, you'll go insane. Yeah. Like, literally, you'll go insane. Like, we we know what happens when people are in solitary confinement. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like a very good idea to make a world where we have to interact less and everything is for the convenience of machines versus being for the convenience of humans. Yeah, and I feel like the— It's not like we're having a few—, few it's not like we have any fewer humans. Right. And and I feel like the, the, the role computers can play, like, I feel like computers are their best when they're enabling those kinds of connections rather than, like, replacing mm-hmm. them. Um, exactly. So, the, obviously, one of the key things, once you sort of establish that, um, like, when we talk about AI, like, in the real world, we're really talking about data sifting and using data to make predictions. But one of the concepts you bring up that's really important, especially when we think about how bias enters that system, is this notion that uh, data is something that is socially constructed. What do you mean by that? So all data comes down to people counting things. And sometimes that's camouflaged by the computer counting things, but it's really a person who has made the judgment about what is being counted and what counts. And so the problem is that people embed their own unconscious bias in the technology that they make. And we know this in, uh, say, surveys. Like we have, uh, we have good language 
around uh, what are the potential flaws in surveys. You know, everybody learns about confirmation bias, and we don't we don't take that same critical lens and apply it to situations where we're gathering data via computer. Mm. So one of the things I argue in the book is that we should think about things we're doing on the computer the same way that we think about things we're doing in the real world. Because we all have unconscious bias, and we're all working on it. We're all trying to get better. Uh, But we can't help embedding our unconscious bias in the technical systems that we create. And we can't see those biases because, you know, they're unconscious. You can't see (laughs) them, right? So when we have very homogeneous groups of people telling us about the future of technology and society or very homogeneous groups of people like in Silicon Valley making technology, then they're not going to catch things that people in a more heterogeneous group would. So that's, to me, that's the best argument for having more diversity among the teams of people who are creating today's technology. So one example of this is the Apple Watch. So the first generation of the Apple Watch shipped with all of these uh, all of these claims about health tracking. Well, it didn't have a menstrual tracker. Mm. And half of the people out there in the world, like they're going to use the Apple Watch for tracking their periods. So if there had been more women in power at Apple or in power on the Apple Watch team, then it is quite likely yeah. that that would have come up. And wouldn't it be more equitable to ship the Apple Watch with a menstrual tracker installed by default so that you have to take it off if you don't need to use it? Right. As opposed to having to put it on. Right. Yeah, it's 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 funny how and I think this goes back to what you were saying about the sort of very homogenous group that kind of founded all this tech in the first place. It's it's funny how it's taken 20, 30 years for us to start to see what happens when that group is so homogenous, um, when it could have any of that could have been easily diverted by um, a more diverse team. But it's basically the technology moves faster than the human brain does, right? Like it's enabling things and sort of scaling things that you know we just didn't we just didn't see because um, we're still catching up. Um, yeah. And I think it was also so fun to solve the technical problems, so fun to solve the engineering problems and the mathematical problems that people got out over their own skis. Mm. And so now we go back to the the bias uh, against social problems mm-hmm. inside the mathematical world, yeah. that bias that the tech world inherited. So... There was this notion that, oh, solving the technical problem, the mathematical problem, the engineering problem is what matters. And the social problems that we're creating or enhancing, those don't really matter. That it's just more important to solve the technical challenges. That we'll figure out all the other stuff later. Yeah, and I feel like there's probably a strong economic aspect to that, too, because I think about what you said about maintenance, and I think the other reason people are more excited about innovative problem-solving than maintenance problem-solving is the money goes to the innovative problem-solving. People get more excited about creating venture capital capital for 
oh, the disruptive app versus the maintenance app, right? Like how many VCs are clamoring for that maintenance app? Um, and I feel like it's this vicious cycle of, well, if that's where the money is, well, then I'm going to, I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to disrupt Uber rather than disrupt, you know, rather than maintain, you know, bridges. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. But when the bridges fall down, like people are going to die. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, like data journalists know a lot about uh, bridge maintenance. There's kind of a classic uh, data journalism story where you go and you uh, look at the bridge inspection data for your local community. And uh, it's a classic story because America's bridges are in really terrible condition mm. as a general rule. So you can always find a problem with a bridge inspection. So I I would highly recommend all listeners go to your uh, go to your local open data portal, look at the inspection data for all of the bridges that you take to work every day, and uh, and agitate to get those things fixed. Yeah, I I I've, I, I shudder to think what I'm going to see when I look. But so th this kind of reminds me just uh, from a data journalism perspective, this is something I'm I'm also starting to see is. There's even a bias in where you can find good data. So this is just um, complete sidetrack but relevant. So um, I, for listeners who don't know, I'm a black person married to an Indian woman with a mixed-race child. We were living in a neighborhood. And we, uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is we decided to fly a pride flag for, for Pride Month. And me being me and being hyper-cautious, and if any of you have listened to the Zero Risk Bias episode, you know that's my personal bias, um, decided, hey, I'm going to look and try to find out how many hate crimes have happened in my neighborhood, just so I can get a sense oh, for should, how scared should I be, right, for putting something mm -hmm. out there that could potentially make me a target, yada, yada. So I tried mm -hmm. to do the, the um, research around that, and I found, at first surprisingly, and then after I thought about it for a minute, not surprisingly at all, how hard it is to find regional data about hate crimes, and there are, and as, yep. as I'm sure you can, you know, explain much better than I, there are so many reasons for that. But where you are can determine how easy it is to access certain types of data and whether or not there even is any data collected, right, about that thing. Mm -hmm. So it's this, I don't know, yet another way that these biases kind of seep into. And then obviously, if we're talking about if I wanted to create an AI that could spit out something like that, it would be very hindered by the fact that in some cases, there just ain't no data. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I I think that uh, being a person of color uh, has always been a really useful lens for me in thinking about uh, the shortcomings of data. So I'm also black. I'm married to somebody who's white, and we have a mixed-race kid. And so I took my kid to the doctor one time and he, when he was a baby, and he had a rash. And the doctor looked at the baby and uh, and said, oh, uh, you know, it's such and such kind of rash, but it's funny, we only ever see this rash in African-American babies. Hmm. And I realized that she thought my kid was white. Mm. And I, I explained that he's not. And it was just, it was, it illustrated to me that so much of, Medicine has a kind of a shorthand around race as a heuristic for diagnosis mm. and that medical systems are set up to reflect very, very naive understandings of race as a 
as a data category. So for mixed race kids, like if the like you would always wonder what you're going to put because the system often doesn't allow you to check multiple boxes, Mm -hmm. which is a design decision. And so, you know, if you're forced to choose one, then it becomes highly problematic. But then if we're talking about a medical context, then like it might actually be diagnostically relevant. So the, the kind of naive way that the systems are built by the engineers who were uh, who were not thinking about a more nuanced approach to race, like it has the snowball effect, right? And another fascinating thing about these huge systems that they use in hospitals or the big systems that they use at universities is most of these systems were actually created in the 1960s. Hmm. So universities are actually still running on the same kind of mainframe technology that they built way back in the 60s when people started using computers. Wow. The banks also run on very, very old technology. Oh, don't tell me that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. The thing is, like, it still works. Like, it's incredible that the Fortran code (laughs) is still going. Like, it's that robust that they did just set it and forget it. It's in some ways more stable than the disruptive new technologies. Yeah. Well, and it's and it's what they were trying to disrupt, right? Like the, the this is the other thing I sort of like keep coming back to when I think about that difficulty grappling with social issues thing. It's like the myth I had about the tech revolution was that oh, it's going to disrupt all this stuff, and all they really disrupted was you know how technology was built. What they didn't disrupt was oh well the way to make money off it is to exploit people. Like they didn't really disrupt that or they didn't really mm-hmm. disrupt, you know, patriarchy or any, like they weren't really inter- interested in disrupting any of that. And it's sort of like, that would have been the more useful thing to disrupt. But um, yes. yeah, that's, I would very much like to disrupt the patriarchy. Yeah. Like where's the app for that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I would download it. In a second. <laughs> I, I would actually pay for that app. Um, the, uh, as I think about, as I was sort of like looking through my notes and kind of thinking like what kind of biases that we've covered, like on my show, I think were kind of relevant. It was funny, like there's this sort of ineffable, like, well, it all is just this biasy or bias around just wanting to simplify the hell out of things. Like the one lesson I've learned doing these, doing this podcast is that the mind hates uncertainty and loves certainty. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the version that I see here and a lot of different things like how if Peter Thiel is smart about making money, I'm going to assume he's smart about social issues. Or uh, I, I want to believe that an AI can fix everything. It's basically hating complexity, right? Mm-hmm. Hating complexity the same way you hate uncertainty because if something's complex, it, it feels like uncertainty. And so I don't want to grapple with social issues. Uh, give me something simple, right? I don't want to think, I want to just, you know, throw everything over to technology and assume it can solve the problem and just like, Treat it, treat it like that, and not think about complex things. Um, uh, anyway, that that's just sort of like the the vibe that, that to me that is sort of what what techno techno chauvinism as a bias kind of leans into is this notion of it's really hard to think through even saying hey um, humans partnering with computers is better than just computers. Yeah, but just computers is simpler, <laughs> right? <laughs> and no, I feel like No, I'm so glad you said that because that is that is exactly what I was going mm. for with the idea of techno chauvinism. So, 
what you said about attributing competence mm. to people across different disciplines is the root of so many of our problems in the technological world today. So we looked at someone like Marvin Minsky and said, oh, he's a genius mathematician. Of course we should listen to him about uh, social policy having to do with technology. And so there's this, this attribution of expertise, right, that, that transfers somehow. So we can... So some people look at Elon Musk and say, oh, well, Elon Musk made a lot of money on PayPal. Of course he must know how to run an electric car company, which there's absolutely nothing that says that Elon Musk knows how to run an electric car company. But we have this this fallacy uh, that expertise transfers, that somebody is an expert at one thing, so of course they must know what they're talking about in a totally different realm. And so there's been a lot of that in the tech world, because when you have engineers who come in and say, oh, well, I don't really uh, know anything about uh, medical systems, but I know about building technology, so I'm just going to build a technical system that doctors are going to want to use, and it's going to be better. Like that's techno chauvinism. Yeah, and and I, and I feel like the you know field of experience design you know to toot my own horn for a minute, but that that was meant. I don't know that it was always implemented as such, but was meant as an antidote a bit to that to sort of say, going back to our mm -hmm. earlier conversation, can we just talk about the problem first, right? <laughs> can right. we please talk to some people who are dealing with the thing before we build something to solve the thing? You know, please, let us just talk to some people first, right? Um, and, it, and it comes back yeah. to your same point, like that human connection. Like, how do, we, how do we get back to it? Yeah, because the human connection, at the end of the day, that's what matters. Something I want to um, make sure we get to before we, we wrap up is this concept I've been seeing. Um, we were hanging out at uh, Social Science Food Camp earlier, and this topic came up then. It comes up in your book. And it's this idea that, you know, we've been talking about how if data is socially constructed, right, the people making the data, because it is people, have their biases. That bias is going to end up in the data. That data is going to end up in the system. The AI is sort of leveraging to make these predictions. So, therefore, the predictions are going to be biased. Um, and something I kind of keep coming back to is this idea of, well, if we want the AI to make less biased predictions or make predictions that reflect a world that we prefer, why give it data from the world we have, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's going to be biased anyway. Why not give it a positive bias or a bias that's actually uh, going to be um, going to be helpful, right, and not hurtful? Um, and yeah. I just wanted to, like, just bring that up a bit because you do touch on that, I, I feel, a little bit in the book as well. So one of the things that we do when we use machine learning systems is we take data about the world as it is, and we tell the machine to replicate, to create a model, and the model replicates the world as it is. And that doesn't get us closer to the world as it should be. So when you take something like mortgage data and you try and build a machine learning model that decides who should get a mortgage, well, if you take historical mortgage data, you're actually taking in data about decades upon decades of racist housing policy. Mm -hmm. So 
it doesn't actually make a lot of sense to to feed in data that we know is biased and then to reproduce those inequalities. But if you don't know that those inequalities exist, like say if you're someone who has just been trained in mathematics and has not paid sufficient attention to uh, you know, sociological factors or you didn't pay attention in your liberal arts classes in college or whatever, then you're not going to you're not going to see this problem. You're not going to bring it up. Uh, and you're not going to think it matters. And the problem matters a great deal. So, I, I mean, you asked, shouldn't we feed in less biased data? Uh, we absolutely should. But every time that that comes up, it devolves into an argument about what is bias mm. and what would this less biased data look like. And and then that gets really complicated. So one of the uh, one of the interesting solutions that I've seen comes from Joy Bolamwini, who is a uh, PhD student at MIT and has founded something called the Algorithmic Justice League. Mm. So Joy has a project called Gender Shades, in which she discovered uh, the what she calls the coded gaze. Uh, which has to do with the fact that facial recognition systems, uh, which come from uh, three companies, three companies dominate the facial recognition market, and these companies' technology does not recognize darker-skinned people. Mm. It's very good at recognizing pale males. It's very bad at recognizing uh, darker-skinned females. So part of the problem has to do with the training data that these uh, facial recognition algorithms are trained on a biased data set that has predominantly pale males. And so what Joy did was she created a less biased training data set. Instead of having a data set that had mostly white men, she created one that had uh, equal numbers of men and women and had people from all different uh, skin tones. So there's a measure that dermatologists use to say uh, what level of melanin you have in your skin because it's diagnostically relevant for uh, dermatology. And so she used that scale instead, which is a really interesting way of making a more equitable data set. Yeah. Um. I feel like I could talk to you about this for hours, and uh, someday I probably— I feel like I could talk to you about this, I too. I probably will. Uh, but I, I think we'll wrap it up for today with um, with that more hopeful data set. Um, uh, so, uh, Meredith Broussard, thank you very much for uh, being on the show. Everybody go get Artificial Unintelligence. It is fantastic. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. Um, and for the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas, and we will see you next time. <laughs>